looks like we're having some trouble. We have audio troubles today, people. Audio trouble troubles on behind the lens. We've got crackles in our master box. We've got... And Pam was going to bring up something and it didn't come up. So never mind, Pam. You know, just... <laughs> We're just having so much fun here already. This is what happens after you take a week off, and it was a holiday last week for Memorial Day. But we move on. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. And you can find my movie reviews and interviews 24-7 in print and online around the globe. And, of course, on BehindTheLensOnline.net. But every Monday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, I am right here on AdrenalineRadio.com. And hey, if you're listening right now, you can also go to the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page and you can watch the Facebook live stream. Not that exciting, but for the fact that you get to see all the really cool Han Solo and Avengers merchandise that is decorating my tablescape again this week. Um... And for those of you that have not yet seen Han Solo, you know I've been chanting this for almost a month now. See it, see it, see it. See it. You know, the naysayers about, oh, the box office. The movie broke $100 million opening weekend. That is nothing to sneeze at. But the film is so good. Ron Howard does such an incredible job. And to watch the foundation of what we came to know and love about Harrison Ford's Han Solo and Chewbacca to see that in its infancy and start in uh, Solo, a Star Wars story. You can't beat it. You can't beat it. Uh, Alden Ehrenreich and Donald Glover are impeccable as Han Solo and Lando Calrissian. So do yourself a favor. The holiday box office from last week has died down. Theaters are a little bit thinner out there. So go during the daytime, relax, and enjoy yourself and see the incredible Solo, A Star Wars Story. But for all of you who want to just sit at home and see something, now on digital and on DVD Blu-ray tomorrow is A Wrinkle in Time. Um, As many of our regular listeners know, I was beyond excited with anticipation waiting for A Wrinkle in Time when it hit movie theaters it is my all-time favorite book by Madeline L'Engle. Um And with the theatrical release of the film, the book actually shot to the number one bestseller uh, slot after decades since its original release. Um, the movie, it's, it is a visual wonder. It is visual splendor. I'm very thrilled for the home video release. I had a chance to speak with Storm Reed, who plays Meg Murray, and Derek McCabe, who plays Meg's younger brother, Charles Wallace. It is their story that is the heart and soul of A Wrinkle in Time. But in addition to speaking with them, I got to sit down for a one-on-one with the producer, one of the producers, Catherine Hand. Catherine has, like myself, has loved this book since the first time she read it in 1963. I admit to all... I have read that book at least once a year, every year, since I was in second grade. So that's been for 52 years. Um, And so to get to sit down and speak with somebody whose love and passion for the book equaled my own 
uh, and even surpass mine, given that she plotted on since 1979 to get this movie made. This has been her baby. She has spearheaded this, um, gone through many iterations and incarnations before landing on the doorstep, ultimately, of Disney. So take a listen. Um, well, but before we do that, I should tell you who's coming up on the show. See, Pam, you know, audio stuff at the top of the show just screwed me up. At the quarter hour mark, we have director Adam Sobel joining us to talk about his new documentary, The Workers' Cup. Um, Adam is well known as a television and journalism producer covering the Middle East um, for outlets such as CNN, BBC, HBO, The Guardian. Um, And this is quite an interesting story that talks about centers around uh, the World Cup, which will take place in Qatar in 2022. Uh, But we also then have, at the half-hour mark, I'm so excited, one of my filmmaker friends, David Palomaro, is back. It's been a few years since David had a film. Uh, The last one he did was In Heaven There Is No Beer, a a great documentary. Now he's back with a narrative that's kind of an Agatha Christie-Hitchcock crossover. Uh, Murder Made Easy that's going to be screening at the Dances with Films Film Festival next week in Los Angeles. Um, So I'm so thrilled to have David here. This is a whole new genre uh, for him to explore as a director and also as co-editor. So I can't wait to talk to David uh, about this. But right now, before both of our special guests today, let's take a listen to my interview with Catherine Hand as we talk about A Wrinkle in Time. I am so thrilled that you brought this. I've waited my whole life for this. Like you, the TV version, I was so excited, and then I watched it. Let me just tell you. (laughs) And Yeah, I know. You know, how challenging has it been over the years? Because this is not the kind of film... It wasn't classified a book. It wasn't classified as a young adult. It was. It had a sci-fi. You know, it was classified so many different things by librarians. Uh, so I'm curious in the film market over your journey in bringing this to life. What were some of the hurdles that you had to overcome before you had anybody in the predominantly male-dominated banking part of it, financing part of this, to say? something here you know i think uh the very first hurdle i had to overcome in all of this is to accept that it was going to be difficult Mm. you know i i loved it i thought it was going to be just a fantastic movie and i had no idea that other people saw it differently than i did Mm. and i didn't understand I didn't know that it was a male-dominated, you know. I mean, I didn't think about that, right. you know. Um, I just knew how I felt after I read it, which was I felt so good, and I wanted to read it again. And so, you know, from in my mind, if you're going to spend the time and energy trying to bring something to the screen, little screen, big screen, streaming screen, <laughs> whatever, it's because you want to spend your time doing it, and you think at the end of the day people are going to feel better you know that you're going to add to you're going to add to their life mm-hmm. and uh, and i really felt that about a wrinkle in time i thought it was it, it, I, exactly what i've said I, I think it illuminates the human spirit and i did read somewhere where someone said it's a roadmap of sorts to be a good person mm-hmm. 
how many, there are not that many projects out there yeah. to do that. Um, so the very first time we worked with a screenwriter, I was taken aback that it, it, it wasn't good. <laughs> the screenplay didn't work. And I didn't realize then, I mean, I had, did over the years, how people saw that book so differently depending on the, their t- the time of their life when they're reading it, what's going on in their life when they're reading it. Um, and it, it became like herding cats every time I would have a conversation really with anyone mm-hmm. that the dark thing was different to everybody, the ladies were different, spirituality, some people loved the spirituality, some people said you had to get rid of it, um, people would say you got to get rid of happy medium, you got to condense the three ladies into one, you got to lose Calvin and Charles Wallace and it only should be about Meg. I mean, I just went through so many uh, conversations. I think the thing that um, really always got me was when I would be in conversations with folks who just thought the book didn't work. And and I would think it won the Newbery Award and it has lasted at that time. It's, it's beloved for 35 years and you don't think it works. I, I could not understand that. And slowly but surely, I also found that I would run into the exact same issues that Madeline faced trying to get it published. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, you know, what audience is this for? You know, um, it's too, too dark or too smart for kids. Adults won't like it. I mean, just all these different things. And um, so it was, it was shocking to me. That it was difficult. And then, of course, I got even more determined to not give up. (laughs) (laughs) Shall we say like our heroine? Yeah, I guess you could say that. Yeah. Do you see yourself taking another journey, moving into Swiftly Tilting Planet or... Well, unfortunately, that's not up to me. That's up to Disney. You know, um, I wish... I wish that they would wish to make the um, sequels, and maybe your audience will, you know, write letters. Where, you know, let's do um, uh, "Wind in the Door" and "Swiftly Tilting Planet." I think they could be great movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe even for Disney streaming service, but that's that's really up to Disney. Yeah. You know, how? When did you finally make that leap to Disney with this film? I mean, you have a pedigree. Norman Lear, come on. But working with Norman Lear in television is a whole lot different than feature film. And then finally, you get that nibble, you get that interest, and then you end up on Bob Iger's door. So, okay. <laughs> the, the truth behind the scenes, truth of that, is that um, when I made the deal with Miramax to do the TV version, I mean, it, when I made the original deal with Miramax, it was not as a TV. It was as a feature film. And I remember having a conversation with Bob Weinstein at the time. Like, how can this little film company, little independent film company, um, afford to make A Wrinkle in Time? And he said not to worry. He's going to find the money. He had to have it. He has to make this movie. And he was incredibly emphatic. I mean, you know, he was just he clearly loved A Wrinkle in Time. Two months after I signed the deal with Miramax, 
Disney bought Miramax. So in after the TV version was made, um, and I was disappointed, and I wasn't quite sure how I was going to make a remake happen. Mm-hmm. The day that Miramax and Disney got a divorce, I went knocking on the door then of Dick Cook, who was the chairman of Disney, and I said, in the divorce, please take a wrinkle in time. And that was the moment that it became a Disney project. Wow. That's the kind of stuff that Disney stories are made of. Yeah, right. And then the other thing was, I think there are probably plenty of executives, they know who they are, that wished I had gone away because I just would not, I mean, I just kept sending emails, I kept making phone calls, you know. And, um, you know, really everything turned around when Tendon Agenda said, you know, I really, I really think we should give this a shot. And then, he, then Jim Whitaker had also really liked Wrinkle in Time, and he had talked to Disney, and Tendo said, I think I have someone you need to meet. And then Jim and I met, and uh, then not too long after, maybe six months, seven months, we heard that it was Jennifer Lee's favorite childhood book. And Yeah, right? <laughs> and so... I think for me, everything changed the moment I met Jennifer Lee. I just felt that she was a young Madeline Langle, that she understood. Not only did she understand the book and love it from a child's point of view like I did, but she studied physics. You know, that was her major in college. So here was this brilliant writer who understands joy and love and what it is to feel, to feel fearful, to become fearless. She understood that. And um, but she also understood the science behind and she the did and the all of it, and she knew how to write about it, and it was just it was really, really wonderful. And then Ava, when Ava joined the team, it then became a movie. Right. I mean, all up until it was all hope, and it was all like um, let's do this or whatever. Ava joined. Now we had our director. Now we had a movie, and so that was that 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 was the real turning point. <laughs> Curious because you have been on this journey, you've been in this business, you've seen so many aspects and facets, jumped so many hurdles. Now that the film has been made, it's been out there, it's now going to DVD and Blu ray. And yes, I'm so happy Aunt Beast is on, is an added deleted scene extra on the DVD. <laughs> um, I'm curious what you personally have taken away from this journey of getting this film made that you now will take forward into your future projects? Oh, that's a really good question with many answers. But I will say one thing that I did not see in the beginning of this that I do now. One of the things that Madeline Langle did was that she created really a mythic adventure from a young girl's point of view. And that what she, the great gift she gave us was the journey itself. Because going on the journey is how you, you, you only know who you are. And you only know what your talents are when you are tested. When you are given a task or a mission and you have to see it through. 
And that is what happens for Meg. I think that's what a lot of young young people, not only just young girls, young boys too, because Charles Wallace and Calvin are also on a similar adventure, just not as central focused as Meg. But it's the journey and being tested to discover who you are. And I think for me, it was the journey of trying to get this movie made that being tested as much as I have been really helped me to learn how to test her well. And that was producer Catherine Hand of Wrinkle in Time. And for all of you filmmakers out there who were just listening to what Catherine had to say, I have to tell you, this is what determination and fortitude can do. As you can hear, she went, she followed this and pushed this project through for so many years, for decades, before it finally coming to fruition. She never gave up. And, you know, for filmmakers, that, for producers, directors, you're starting out and you feel discouraged. Catherine is a perfect example of why you shouldn't get discouraged. And if you truly believe in your project, keep hammering those doors keep going forward because who knows you could be tessering and short shortening your own line and getting your film made uh, I will have more on behind the lens net of speaking with Catherine uh, and her take on various characters and along with some fun fun stuff from Storm Reed and scene stealing Derek McCabe who I have to tell you people if you see A Wrinkle in Time now, if you miss it in the theater, if you see it now on digital or tomorrow on Blu-ray and DVD, Derek McCabe is your scene stealer. The, the, put him on your radar. We're going to see a lot more of Derek in the years to come. And right now, we're going to switch gears, and I am so thrilled to welcome Adam Sobel to Behind the Lens. Adam, hello. Hi, how are you? I am so happy to be talking to you. Yeah, I, pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I am thrilled to have you. The, the Workers' Cup, I have to say, is one of the most intriguing documentaries I think I have ever seen. The subject, <laughs> the, the subject matter, it just came out of the blue, as far as mm. I'm concerned. This is not really what you think of somebody sitting down and, and conceptualizing and doing it for a documentary. Um <laughs> You know, now, I know that all of your work in the years that you've spent in the Middle East doing television and production and journalism, I'm sure that influenced and is what opened the door for you to tell this story revolving around the preparations for the Qatar World Cup 2022. Um, and for those in America, when you watch the documentary, they're talking football, but it's actually soccer to Americans, football to the rest <laughs> of the world. Let's get that That's straightened right. out right now. <laughs> so, you know, tell tell the audience, tell the listeners just what the Workers' Cup is. I mean, I think it's fascinating, and I think on the one hand it's a really great thing, uh, but on the other hand you see what lies beneath that and it contrasts yeah. it. So tell everybody what the Workers' Cup is and how you got the idea to tell this story. Sure. Um, well, the, the Workers' Cup, 
is a soccer tournament in Qatar, which, uh, as you mentioned, is hosting the 2022 World Cup, which is a soccer tournament. So the rest of the world might call it a football tournament. We here call it a soccer tournament. Um, and it is the world's biggest sporting event. Um, it's, it's actually starting uh, in a couple weeks in Russia, the 2018 World Cup, and then four years later, later it'll be in Qatar. Um, and uh, I found out about tournament because I was actually living in Qatar. I lived there for about five years. Um, and while I was living there, I was making documentaries and news around the region. Um, and as soon as Qatar won the right to host the World Cup, uh, they came under quite a bit of media scrutiny for their treatment of uh, migrant workers, uh, the people who are actually building the World Cup. Um, one thing that's fascinating about Qatar as a place is that uh, 90% of the population isn't from Qatar. 90% is foreign. And 60% of the total population um, are these blue-collared migrant workers, people who come from largely the Indian subcontinent. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, they come from poor places, and uh, they, they, are, they are recruited to come to Qatar and work construction jobs and kind of bolster the, uh, the service industry there. Um, and uh, they're very vulnerable, and that makes them um, you know, uh, very vulnerable to exploitation. Um, from from a, a labor system that kind of uh, doesn't give them a whole lot by way of uh, privileges. So, uh, to make a long story short, <laughs> I was living there. This soccer tournament got announced. We knew that uh, there was uh, a promotional element that the organizers of the tournament were interested in, in highlighting, and we managed to kind of use that as a way of gaining um, access to, uh, into the labor camps where the workers live and into the construction sites where they worked um, to tell this story in a, in a meaningful way. Well, you know, there are 1.6 million migrant workers in Qatar. Uh, I don't know how many of those are, have been working on the Khalifa International Stadium and all the surrounding buildings going into uh, preparations for 2022. But how did you then hone in on the Gulf contracting company and the workers within there out of all the workers there, you know, you really hone in and pick a group, um, a very diverse group. And you do have what I believe to be quite unfettered access in, in speaking with them and hanging out with them and going to living quarters and going on the job with them. So I'm curious how you narrowed that, scope down to, you know, give you a foothold? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, we, we, had made, we had made media about this, this subject, you know, migrant workers building a World Cup. Um, and when I say we, by the way, I mean myself and the two producers of the film, Ramsey Haddad and Rosie Garthway. Uh, we had made documentaries and news pieces about this already, but we had kind of, um, we had, you know, this is a very sensitive topic in Qatar. Mm-hmm. And it's a country without much by way of media freedoms. So we'd have to work undercover. We'd have to hide people's identity. Um, and ultimately, you know, we'd have this, have this rule where you could only spend eight minutes in a labor camp and then you had to leave because that's when the authorities could show up. And so what can you really learn about these lives in eight minutes? You, um, you know, you can ask mm-hmm. them, do you have their passport? You can ask them how many bathrooms they have, what kind of living conditions they are. But you're really approaching the story on your terms. You're not approaching on their terms. So access was the key component that 
to telling this story in a way that we thought was was uh, was more appropriate and, and, and kind of was able to celebrate them. Um, we focused on GCSP, the Gulf contracting company, as you mentioned. Um, I think it was, you know, partially by luck, to be honest. Um, partially, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we, we I was looking for a team that was diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, as you mentioned, they have... Uh, their their soccer team that was playing in this tournament uh, represents several different nationalities, which I thought was really interesting and an important uh, component to highlight for a film about migrant workers in the Gulf because um, they really do come from many, many places. And so I didn't want to make a film that was just about Nepalis or just about Indians, which is kind of make up the, the biggest percentage of workers in Qatar, but rather I thought it was more important to show that this is kind of more of a global issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one thing that attracted me to, to their team. And then the second thing that attracted to me that uh, attracted me to them was just that, that they had this great energy and enthusiasm and zeal. And um, they loved they loved the game of soccer and they were really committed to uh, to the tournament. Um, and so that as a storyteller uh, was really compelling. Um, and the characters also were surprising. You know, Kenneth, who's one of the main characters in the mm-hmm. film. Um, when we met him, we found out that he was this, you know, he thought he was coming to Qatar to become a professional soccer player. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what his recruiting agent had told him. And then he arrived and instead was giving a hard hat and a pair of overalls and said, Hey, go to work. And didn't he, didn't he pay his recruiting agent? He did. Yeah. That's, what, that's yeah. A really kind of practice. Yeah. It's actually, you know, but it's, a, it's, the regulation, the labor regulations now state that you're not supposed to pay recruiters, but it remains a very common practice in the countries of origin. Um, Kenneth was from Ghana. Um, and, and, you know, they just, that, that's what, uh, that's what recruiting agents said. If you say, you know, you have to give me 1500 us dollars in order to go there. And people are in such a vulnerable position. They feel so desperate for work that they're, that they're going to do it. Wow. Well, you know something that you ver- that I is so striking about this documentary, your visuals. This is a visual beauty, and <laughs> but it gives. I mean, it is it's gorgeous. You've got the sleek stainless steel high rises, you know, that have been built on the backs of these migrant workers. They're uh, but everything with your cinematography. It's bright. It's vivid. The light is very bright. Everything. It's gleaming. So you set up this great contrast, this wonderful juxtaposition uh, between the migrant workers and what's going on in that respect and what is visible, what the world sees the country as being. And the visual beauty alone, I mean, you could just watch this documentary all day long just looking at your visuals. (laughs) They're that stunning. But then when, when you dig and you actually pay attention to the story you're telling, it really opens up the mind with great food for thought about what exactly is happening. And in a sense, it's a form of slavery. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we tried to um, approach the story with great nuance. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because, again, we, we lived there. Myself and the producers, the three of us lived there. We lived there for many years. And so we care about the place. We care about improving society for the better. And, um, you know, a lot of most people that I knew in Qatar wanted to see something change. They just didn't feel empowered to, to change it. Um, so 
that meant that we had to go about telling the story uh, in a way that is um, that is sensitive. And so a lot of the criticisms, uh, you know, come from the juxtaposition, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cutter is a place of great contrast. You, you know, the segregation, the inequity is is uh, is extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had to find a way to highlight that, not just uh, narratively, but to, to highlight it visually and contextually. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of why the visuals go in the direction that it goes in. And then as to, you know, your point about slavery, I think, you know, even within the film, you see some characters that do label the situation as slavery. Yeah. Um, you see some other characters who kind of recoil at that, uh, that mm-hmm. term when it's first, when it's first mentioned. Um, out of sensitivity to some of those characters, I never will call it that because some 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 characters in the film really would not they do not appreciate that term. Right. Um, but I think that that's that we try to tell the film in a way that kind of allows the audience to to make that judgment for themselves. Um, so yeah, it's it's um it's 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 a situation um you know where no matter what you label it, uh, certainly you have. Uh, you know, people who have the capital, people who have the power, um, are in a position of of of, of, uh, of kind of uh, you know controlling people who don't. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm curious, Adam, logistically, how what length of time did you shoot over, and how much footage did you have to call through to edit, or did you pretty much have your through line in mind already, and you were editing as you were going? No, so I mean, you know. Even though we we kind of won over the access to to make this film because we had lived in the country, we were trusted, we were respected as journalists. So we were given access to this. We still thought that we were going to be shut down every single day that we showed up to shoot. So, you know, I I never knew that I was making a feature film until about halfway through it. You know, when I, after the, you know, we set out, we started making the film and we thought, oh, this would be like maybe a nice little three minute film, but somebody's going to shut us down. And then we just kept showing up to the camps, and they kept letting us in. And I thought, well, this would be like a nice little ten-minute film, but somebody's going to shut us down, really. And then we just kept showing up day after day, week after week, and sure enough, nobody shut us down. And it, we ended up filming it for about a year. Um, but it wasn't until, you know, four or five months into it that I thought, oh, my God, this is going to be, I'm going to actually be able to make a feature <laughs> film out of this. Um, up, up until that point, we just, we thought, you know, at some point, somebody's going to, Somebody's going to say, hey, guys, that's enough. We know we told you you have access, but now we've thought better, better of it, and that's enough. Um, but I think that, you know, that we just happened to, we were fortunate that we lived in the country. Uh, that meant that we could keep showing up. We weren't parachuting into the place. Um, and eventually, you know, after enough, like, cups of sugary tea, which, God, I don't know how many cups of tea we had to drink to, to make this film with different people, but, you know, you just keep showing up, you keep drinking tea with people, and after a while, they kind of forget about you, and you become wallpaper, and you just get to do what you want to do. So, <laughs> um, you know, we we always knew that the soccer tournament itself was was going to be the uh, component that made this more accessible and really made it more uh, uh, narratively driven, mm-hmm. and also kind of opened people up to the story, so that they didn't just think of workers as a, re- a resource or as a victim, but rather they saw them as as people who were striving towards something, as people who were alive, and so that was that was the narrative through line. But um, I didn't I didn't know that it was going to be a feature length film until much much longer into the process. Well, I'm so glad it ended up being a feature length film. 
<laughs> me too. Yeah, and I have to say, I mean, watching all of these men participating in, you know, playing soccer and, wor- and you know, leading up to the Workers' Cup with all the eliminations and it, the joy, the joy and exuberance. They are passionate about the sport. They truly love it. And you look at some of them and you think, you know, they don't mind doing the labor. They don't mind doing anything when they get to ha- feel like this. And, and Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, I think that sport does have, well, you know, the, the Workers' Cup tournament was being organized in some of the same tournaments that, that are going to host the World Cup in 2022. Mm-hmm. And so there really was like a fantasy element to, to, the, uh, to the games for the guys. Yeah. And, you know, for, for the workers, they, their daily life is so mundane. It's just this daily grind. You know, they're kind of caught in this constant loop of showing up to their job site and then going back to their labor camp and sleeping and then going back to the job site. It's just, it's, their life really does, is just boiled down to kind of mundane work. Mm-hmm. And this, this tournament was a chance to, uh, to escape that, to break the routine and really escape. Um, and that's why you see them so alive. And again, that's kind of why contrast became such an important mm-hmm. theme in the film to show that, you know, to show, the, to show how they're kind of living, but then also how they're kind of living in the psychological duress when they're not on the field. Mm-hmm. Well, unfortunately, Adam, we are out of time. I would love to talk to you more about this, but <laughs> I, I know the Workers' Cup, it's out in limited release this Friday, June 8th, and then expands wider after, after yes. that. So, I mean, yeah. this is something people, re- if you want something to- that's different, something that is engaging and interesting and will open your mind up and show you parts of the world and, and aspects of cultures that we are unfamiliar with. Um, absolutely fabulous job. And I think everybody should see it. Oh, I, I appreciate you saying that. I think so too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. You know, I think the film, especially for people who are interested in the World Cup, just shows you, yeah. it takes you behind the scenes of the world's biggest sporting event. And, um, and shows it shows it to you in a way that you that you perhaps haven't thought of before. And I got news for you. I know so many guys that are just so into the World Cup. Their life revolves around it when it comes cup time. <laughs> um, I guarantee you, they will all be chomping at the bit to see this. And and Phil Barrett, I know if you're listening, I know this includes you uh, and your buddies. So yes. Adam, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back on the show again. This has been a joy. I would love to. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Debbie. I really appreciate you having me. So get back to work and make some more films for me. Um, I'm going to do that just now. Okay. Thanks, Adam. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Adam Sobel, director of the Workers' Cup. And now I'm so excited because he's here. David Palomaro is with us. Are you there? Hello. Are you there, David? Hello? I can hear you. Oh, great, great, great. I just have to pre-apologize. Sometimes I get I don't get the best reception, so hopefully you can hear me good. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm so thrilled to have you, and I am so thrilled that we are talking about this fabulous, fabulous narrative. Oh, my God. It is delicious. It is decadent. It is divine. I am in love with this film, David. Murder Made Easy. Oh, oh, 
Thank you so much. Yeah, uh, that means that means a lot to me. Uh, um, yeah, I know you were you were a supporter of my documentary a few years ago, so um, I was eager to send it over to you. And um, uh, yeah, I've, I've been I've always been a fan of thrillers and Hitchcock films and things like that. So I wanted to do something like that of my own. So I'm really glad you like it. I mean, this is a big leap from doing, you know, a documentary and having there is no beer to this blend kind of you get the Hitchcockian and Ag- Ag- Agatha Christie blend. I mean, that's a big leap. That's a big stretch uh, for anybody. Yeah, well, it's kind of it. Oh. oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, David. No, no, that's interesting because uh, I went to film school, and uh, for me, storytelling is just storytelling, you know, and um, my documentary, In Heaven There Is, there is No Beer, I made because I was part of a, a music scene that I was really passionate about, I'm also a musician, and I just felt like someone needed to document it. Um, but, you know, I did do a combination of documentaries and narrative films when I was at film school, and I'm a huge Hitchcock fan. In fact, Rope is one of my favorite films of all time, and... Um, yeah, you know, I always wanted to make something like that. Um, I, I, I co-wrote a, a horror script called The House Sitter with my friend Suju Bajayan, uh, mm-hmm. and who's also a, a really good filmmaker. And the problem with that project was that we couldn't get any funding for it because it needed a real uh, budget, you know, a sizable budget. Uh, so out of that came Murder Made Easy because I, I thought, well, what if I could do like a rope type, you know, one location murder mystery? And mm-hmm. so that, that's how it came about. <laughs> So, yeah. I mean, you do it one location murder mystery. You've got seven characters, seven actors. That's it. Um, your structure, the story structure is basically, it's very straightforward. However, within that structure, Tim Davis, uh, your dialogue, I got to tell you, the dialogue in here, you get, you. some of it takes on this great theatricality. So it, it moment mm-hmm. it moments it feels like and with the performances then buttressing that especially Christopher Soren Kelly, oh my God! Just envision Snidely Whiplash without the stash. Um, he yeah, well, he just and he plays this, and you really feel it feels very theatrical at moments, and I, I just it, it really adds so much. It's fabulous. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, we that was intentional. The films that uh, were, were that influenced us the most were Rope, which was based on a play and became a Hitchcock film. Uh, Sleuth, which the, the original Sleuth with Michael Caine and Lawrence Olivier, which was a play. You mean uh, you, before it was a movie and Death Trap, which with Christopher Reeve and, and mm-hmm. Michael Caine again. Uh, and I believe that was a play also. So the theatricality of it was definitely intentional. Uh, and we tried really hard, Tim and I tried really hard to infuse like a dark humor into the script. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was much trickier than we uh, anticipated because those other projects, uh, those other films also had that sort of dark humor. We wanted that. We wanted to, you know, put that in there. So um, I'm glad it works and I'm glad you appreciate it uh, because it was, uh, it was kind of tough. I mean, Murder Made Easy could be a play. It, we kind of oh. did it backwards. You know, we made a film that out of something that actually could be a play. And so maybe one day I'll try it as a play. I don't know. <laughs> I, know? So. I got news for you. I think it would be incredible as a play because of the way you have structured it and the performances. You know, as I said, Christopher really sets the tone with the performance, as does Edmund Lipinski, who plays Marcus. 
um, one mm. of our one of our dinner guests. The two of them are extremely theatrical in what they're putting forward, and you get some humor inherent with that. But you know, also helping everything, you really have some great long takes. You're not doing a lot of yeah. Sh- uh, no, you're not doing a lot of short. You know, rapid fire cuts. Yes, in the initial opening moments of the film, your editing there, it is rapier. It's slice and dice, which, you know, it plays as a double entendre for a murder film, a murder mystery. So that's, but then once we get into the characters and the dinner and each of the guests coming for dinner, you have some nice extended takes um, that I really found appealing. Yeah, that was intentional. It was also uh, influenced by Rope, because Rope is famously one of the first films where they had, you know, it was only six t- six actual shots that, yep. that were 10 minutes each, something like that. That's how, as big as the magazines uh, could hold. Mm-hmm. At that time, you know, the 35-millimeter film, they could only hold 10 minutes of film. Um, and so I, I always wanted to make a movie like that, but also it plays into the theatricality that you're talking about, because Murder Made Easy is very, very much like a play, so I wanted it the scene to play out in real time, and that helped with that as well. And I just got to say, as far as Christopher goes, um, I met the two lead actors, Christopher Thorne Kelly and Jessica Graham, at Dances with Films, that film festival, mm-hmm. a couple years ago. I saw uh, Christopher directed and starred in a short called Pasher, I believe it's how it's pronounced. And, and the next year, they were both in a movie called Monkeys. And I was kind of blown away by the their uh, just how good they were. And so I approached them and said, hey... Would you want to do a film uh, a film with me? And uh, we sent them the script, and they were like, "Sure, let's do it." So um, it, was, it was. I was. I feel very lucky that, and the whole cast was great. So I feel very lucky that uh, we found we found everybody, and, and they wanted to do this crazy project. You know. Well, you know, I got to tell you, Jessica. It's like I was. I did a double take because one look at her, and she looks like you know a young Laura Flynn Boyle. Oh yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, um, with the jet black hair that she's got. And that's something else that you did. And I love the attention to detail that you have in Murder Made Easy. Your use of color in particular. Red is only, Joan is the only person, Jessica's character, Joan, is the only person that wears red. And then you've got red and white wine. And, of course, the person drinking red wine is Joan. But, and then other for a couple instances of blood, there is no other use of red. And I found that mm. particularly striking. And in some respects, you know, it fuels clues as to what's what's unfolding as the film progresses. Yeah, well, that, that's interesting. Uh, we didn't have a big budget for the movie, but uh, uh, I knew I wanted a certain look for each characters and i actually wanted more color in the film um but you know because of time and everything we didn't have really time and and a big enough crew to to do a lot of that kind of stuff so where we did use it i'm glad it's effective but uh jessica and chris actually helped me like kind of like they've done other narrative films before and they're like well you should really think about like what each character looks like and the table settings and all the all that kind of detail and you know, a lot of stuff that I initially didn't really think about because I was concerned with so many other things. Mm-hmm. And then at some point before we started shooting, I really honed in on those details. And I thought that 
was a very, very useful uh, advice, you know, to think about those kinds of things. Um, and I want to also give a shout-out to our cinematographer, Sherry Cox. Oh, Sherry's um, work is on it's this, wonderful. Her work is wonderful, yeah, and David. She, and, but, and she took on this project with um, not a full camera crew. She didn't have an assistant camera operator, which we'd normally have, and we didn't have the budget to do steady cam and all that kind of stuff. So she, her and I had, had to sit down and figure out how we were going to technically pull off these long takes with a lower budget, and um, I think she did an amazing job. So I, she's fantastic, and I can't wait to work with her again. And she never said, oh, that's crazy, we can't do that. She was like, okay, let's figure it out, and we, we did. <laughs> so we were lucky to have her. She's great. Well, you know, something that you mentioned is, you know, shooting food. I have to say... The overhead shots of the plating of the food and the way that the food was plated, I mean, that just, that added its own level of humor, especially since some of the dialogue <laughs> is talking about, oh, how are those new potatoes? Uh, where you don't see the people, you just see the food. And and you may cut back, you know, briefly to them, you know, eating something, but it's those overhead shots of the food, be it the sirloin steak and potatoes and i have to let everybody know they do beautiful inset menu cards for each one of the each one of the dinner scenes <laughs> that, that that just cracked me up david as i'm watching and we have you know first you know first course second course yeah vegan salad made by cricket of course you know dessert dessert yeah, that- becomes just desserts uh, it just very very yeah. clever well, I think the menu, we did a, we shot, we shot the whole film in rehearsal with an iPhone, and I think, and then I cut it together just so we had like a, a little visual storyboard. I wow. think the menu stuff came at that point, but the overhead uh, shots of the food was always an idea I had to kind of divide up each of the different meals. Uh, and I also, so working with food is very difficult, because <laughs> when you're eating food in the film, and then you have to reset to do another take, you have to reset all the food, and all the wine, and all the drinks, and mm-hmm. I didn't really understand that at first. <laughs> um, so I have to give another shout out to my friend Jenny Robinson, who came aboard as our food stylist, and um, the actual in-film meals were very were done very last minute. Like, I, I, I was so constant. I was so worried about everything else, and so I realized a couple of days beforehand, I'm, I, I don't really have this food that we're actually going to see on film. And I, I was kind of in a panic, and I called my friend Jenny, who's a great cook, and I said, I'm doing this film, I need four different meals. And she's like, calm down, write down everything you want, write down what the meals are, send me photos of what you, the ideas you have and the ingredients if you have it, and I'll cook it up. And she did. She, she was up till 6 a.m. the night before we were shooting, making all these meals. And gave us these instructions on how to like reheat it, and, and like she really saved the, my butt on that because I didn't really understand that. Just like actors, if you're going to feature food like that, they they're like an actor in a way. Like you, you have to see them, and it has to look good. You can't just go and buy something in the store really fast. Uh, and you also have to be concerned about continuity when people are eating, like I said, and, and you have to reset to do another take. You go, oh man, wait, the glass is half full, and now we have to. And it actually gets kind of complicated if you're not paying attention. So. Uh, that was another learning experience, but uh, thankfully, I mean, my friend Jenny, a lot of people really helped me out with this movie, and she was one of them, and I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> so the so, food looks good, thanks to her. Oh, the food looks fabulous. You know, but I'm very curious. And it was good, by the way. We ate it. Me and, oh, well. me and Jessica ate that food during, like, because we had four different meals, and once we were done shooting one meal, we had leftover roast or leftover this, and her and I would eat it for lunch, and it was 
It was actually really good. <laughs> the food was excellent. Well, see, and it cuts down on craft services, which you didn't have a budget for. <laughs> we had craft services, but yes, it, it did. It did mean that uh, for those couple of days or whatever, we didn't have to. I didn't have to spend a meal uh, for me or Jessica or whatever. But um, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly how it was. And it, it's all this detailed stuff. Uh, it's very much a learning process because initially I thought, oh, it's just a you know six people or whatever in a room talking, and then mm-hmm. you don't realize when you're dealing with food or you're dealing with long takes and you have to reset everything. Um, all that stuff comes into play and. You know, it was definitely a learning process for me. But I had a really great cast and crew, and no matter how nuts it got or crazy, there was one scene where the first character of Marcus, who played by Ed, uh, Edmund Lipinski, mm-hmm. who you mentioned, he really liked, and we had a big, long take of him. He enters, he sits on the couch, they talk for a while. And we did that take, we did it like 22 times, because every time we shot it, there was noise outside, or someone dropped the line, or someone forgot a line, and it was really hot in there, because we couldn't have the AC uh central air on because that was causing noise for the for the sound guy and you know we just kept not getting the take and it got to be like 22 takes or something finally we got one good one and i was like okay let's let's just move on we got one and the whole cast and crew said no no can we do one more we only got one good one and i was really blown away by that because i thought they all wanted to kill me after doing it 22 times or something you know but that's the kind of crew i had and the cast i had they were very supportive and i felt like um my first, really, my first time narrative film. Mm-hmm. It was really smart to get really talented people around you to help you. You know. So I'm curious because you're mentioning, you know, learning this, learning that. So what was the overall learning curve like for you as you made the jump from documentary into narrative? What were all uh, well, the, of those? The things? documentary was a little bit. The documentary was a little bit different in that, like, I shot all of it, right? And I did my own sound, and I did most of the editing myself. I did have some help from my other uh, friends who are editors at the end when I really just need to get it done. Mm-hmm. And uh, the narrative, I mean, Murder Made Easy was completely different in every way you can imagine. I mean, it's so much more work up front, and you have to figure out how to cast a, a film. How do I cast a film? Well, I have my two lead actors, and Jessica came on board as a, one of our producers. She's like, let me help you with the casting process. Here's what you, you can do. Here's a facility we can use. Uh, I know a few actors already that might be good for the roles, one of which was Daniel, who plays uh, Damien, the filmmaker in the movie. So she was really uh, helpful for me, not just in the pre-production phase of it, but also during production. She sort of acted as our on-set AD, keeping things moving, keeping Mm -hmm. the schedule going. And everything was a learning curve. I mean, I did go to film school, and I did do some films, and I was a production assistant when I first moved to Los Angeles, so I had a little bit of a feel for what it's like to be on a set, but nothing like actually doing your own film. I would say the whole thing... With a learning, with a learning curve, to be honest with you, and um, I'm, I hope that I can take that uh, knowledge and whatever everything I learned from Murder Made Easy, and then apply it to the next movie. But it was, it was, it was hard. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna lie. It was definitely, um, definitely pretty hard. But like I said, I had really talented folks behind me, and that made all the difference in the world. What would you, sure. what would you say was the most important thing that you learned on this shoot? for Murder Made Easy that will inform you now as you go forward into other projects? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I would say that as a director, you're the leader of the film, and everything sort of comes from the top down from you, Mm -hmm. and I feel like, you know, you have to be decisive and you have to um, lead by example, and I think you, you sort of have to believe in what you're doing, 
you know, there are a few times I think we were shooting and I wanted to do certain things and I didn't do them. I'm like, oh, I don't know if we can do that. And I look back now and I'm like, you know, it was my film. I, I think maybe I should have suggested we did this or that. And I think just working with people, learning how to work with your actors, learning how to get the best out of them, uh, learning how to work with your crew and, you know, making them motivated and keeping them interested in what's happening. Uh, I think those are the biggest things I think that I learned. Um, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're just uh, maybe you're somebody that's just pointing to things and telling people what to do. But I think I kind of learned there's a lot more to it than that. And um, I, again, I think I was lucky that I had a really good cast and crew and they're really talented. No matter what was happening, they they just believed in the project and they wanted to push forward no matter what. And so um, that's another thing I learned, you know, you know, hire really great people and they'll They'll lift you up. They'll make you look good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. yeah. I'm curious. Because of the lengthy takes, because of some long, you know, extended moments of dialogue, you know, particularly like with um, Edmund's character of Marcus, he has, you know, it goes into almost a monologue at one point there uh, since he likes to pontificate so much. I'm curious, how strictly did you adhere to the script as written or did you end up with a lot of room for ad-libbing and for improvisation? Actually, there was very little improvisation. Uh, I, I told the actors it's going to be very much like a play, so they should memorize their parts and uh, like they would preparing for a play. Mm-hmm. And then when we did shoot the rehearsal with the iPhone, they tried to stick to the script. There was there's a little bit of ad-lib that's in the film with uh, uh, Damien's character, or... I played by a Daniel, Daniel Ahern, mm-hmm. um, that uh, I, when I was looking through all the takes, I kind of found, oh, right, we kind of ad-libbed a little bit thing. And it was kind of funny, so I left it in there. Uh, but very little ad-libbing because we approached it like a play, and the actors re- approached it that mm-hmm. way. As I told them, it's like, memorize the lines as if you were, you know, performing this three or four nights a week, you know, at a community theater or something like that, you know, because we have to do these long takes. So, uh, and they, they were great. Everyone, all the actors were up for it, and they all did a tremendous job. Actually, it's interesting. Uh, Eddie, who you like, he came in last minute because the actor we we actually cast to play Marcus, he got pneumonia the day before he was supposed to shoot. And he called me up, and he was really ill, and he said, I, I think I can still do it. But we didn't have the, the schedule or the budget to reschedule him. We right. had to keep going. And Jessica was the one that's like, look, we, we have to just keep going. You have to recast him. So Eddie was our second choice. And I called him that night. I said, our, our actor dropped out. He's sick. Unfortunately, he can't do it. Can you do it? And Eddie was like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do it. And he came in, and he did an amazing job. So I really, that's not easy to do, you know, because he didn't know that he was going to do the role, and he had to learn all that dialogue pretty much last minute, and I think he did a great job. He did an amazing job, let me tell you. You know, I would be remiss to not ask you, David, about your music, Sean Spillane's music, because you do have music, not a lot, but what you have, it, some of it takes on almost a, a whimsical tone at moments while being dark. So I'm very curious about uh, the music that you do have and what you know what you and Sean your conversations were like to come up with um, the the musical complement. Yeah, that's that's another great question. A big learning thing is how to what kind of music are you going to have for your film? What kind of tone do you want to set? So Sean's a guy I knew from the music scene I was a part of, which my documentary was about. And he started doing, uh, started doing music for horror films. So 
so I called him up and was like, hey, I got this narrative thing. Do you want to do, you want to do it? And he's like, sure. And I was kind of surprised. He was a big fan of my documentary, so he's willing to come over and do it. So the first time, he, he was one of the first people I, I showed the film to. Mm. And as soon as he saw the film, he said to me, what tone do you want? And I was like, I don't really know. What do you mean? And so we had to figure that out. Is this a drama? Is it a comedy? Is it a dark comedy? Mm-hmm. And through having conversations with him and him shaping the music, we figured out that tone. That it's sort of a blend of comedy and drama, with even a little bit of horror thrown in. There. And for him, he hadn't really done a, a soundtrack or composed music for a film that was mostly orchestral. So it was really and some jazz stuff. So he really uh, loved that challenge. Mm-hmm. And his music definitely, without a doubt, helps set the tone of the movie. And I think that's another thing I learned about making this film is music does that. It seems obvious, yeah. but it really does help set the mood of what your film is. And so we had to figure that out. And I, he was great to work with. And he was very, he's been supportive about, of, of this project from the very, very beginning. So. No, I mean, and lucky to have a guy like Sean. Yeah. No, I just love the music. And I was really, I was really impressed by the types, by the type of music and the tone that it did set. Knowing what you came out of, no, you know, knowing where you came from with your music background, with "In Heaven There Is No Beer," and to see that and to hear, you know, the the tonal balance here, the to- the auditory tonal bandwidth, I was really, really pleased with that. And it was well, just the well, icing it took a on the while. cake. It's, uh, like it, it wasn't something that just came in the first version. Even with uh, when Sean would uh, shoot me some tracks, he's like, "Hey, I think this piece might work for this section." And I put it in there, and I'm like, mm, "It doesn't quite work." And so there was a lot of back and forth, and mm-hmm. there was a lot of uh, it was it was hard. Like it's it, it's like the equivalent to like when Heaven Earth and Beer is about rock bands. So I just used the rock band's music. All these different bands had music right. to put it in the film. It seems obvious. Excuse me. For a narrative film, what I kind of learned is like you have a blank page, and you've got a dialogue-heavy movie, and when do you have music? When do you not have music? Do you let them talk? Do you not let them talk? Like It's like having a blank page when you're trying to write a novel to fill in all those blanks with music. And it took quite a, 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 a long time to figure that out, you know, where we're going to have music, where we're not going to have music. Uh, what kind of music are we going to have at this point? What are we trying to say with the music? And, um, again, that's definitely another thing that I learned a lot about. And Sean was great. You know, having someone who composed feature-length movies before was an invaluable tool because he, it seems like every movie he does, he has to figure that out, what mm-hmm. kind of music is going to work and stuff like that, right. but he had been through the process before, so he kind of guided me through how we were going to do this, you know. So, that, again, I just feel very lucky I had talented folks that helped me with this movie. Very, very lucky. <laughs> so now, before before we're out of time here, where can people see Murder Made Easy? So we are having our West Coast premiere at the Dances with Films Film Festival, and we are screening uh, June 14th, which is a Thursday at 9.30 p.m. at the Chinese Theaters in Hollywood. And we are super, super excited about it. Um, you know, we got into a, a couple other festivals, but this is our West Coast premiere, and obviously we're based in L.A. We shot it here in L.A., and we, we just couldn't be more thrilled that we are a part of that festival. It's a great festival. Again, I met my two lead actors at Dances with Films a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. so... Uh, it feels like we're coming home, and um, we're just really thrilled. And I'm really uh, grateful that you, you know, watched the movie and that you liked it. And you've always been a great supporter of my work, and I just can't thank you enough for that. Oh, my pleasure. You also know if it sucked, I would have told you. <laughs> well, 
you know, that's kind of that's kind of my attitude I have with these projects I do. I, I told people when I would send them the script to even the horror script that we have, which we haven't done yet, or the Murder Made Easy, I, I would I send it to Jessica or Chris, the actors, and I'd say, look, I, I appreciate the honesty. If you think this is not good or you don't you don't want to do it, let me know. I, I mean, the last thing I want to do is uh, work with people who aren't enjoying what they're doing. They're not. They don't believe in what they're doing, um, and so. Uh, I do appreciate that honesty, you know. I, I feel like, um, you know, I don't know. I feel like that probably makes you a better filmmaker if you're able to kind of step back and and look at what you've done and and try to. I'm not one of those people that is really arrogant and like thinks I know everything. I think that I'm one of those people that's kind of amazed that I actually pulled something off, and I'm always learning. You know what I mean? So I do appreciate it. Thank you. Well, you definitely pulled something off here, David, and unfortunately. We're out of time for the show, so I have to say goodbye to you, but I'm going to try and make it there on the 14th to see you for the West Coast premiere. Uh, I don't know if... Oh, that would be great. I don't know if I'm going to be able to because I have a 7 o'clock screening elsewhere in Beverly Hills, but I'm going to try and make it over. But I can't recommend it highly enough. Are you just having one showing at Dancing with Films, or are you going to get an encore? Uh, right now we just have one showing. I mean, if we're able to sell out, one show they they would add another one but uh but yeah right now it's that one screening but i appreciate you you know trying to make it over there i know it's not that's kind of tough coming all the way from from the west side but um uh but yeah thank you for having me on your show thank you for always being supportive of my work i really appreciate it anytime now get back to work and make me another film (laughs) i'll get right on that (laughs) thank you so much david and i'll talk to you soon all right thank you Bye. bye bye And that was David Palomaro, director, co-editor, and story conceiver of Murder Made Easy. It is, it is, it is decadent, it is delicious, it is divine. It is at Dances with Films, June 14th at 9.30 at the Chinese Theater Complex in Hollywood. See it, see it, see it. That is all the time we have today. We'll be back next week. We're already booked up into July now with guests, so we've got lots of people on hand coming, uh, calling in and coming in studio for the rest of June and into July. So that's it for today. I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.